If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I think that we just have to accept that there is an inherent violence about settler colonialism that you know it ultimately the settler colonial idea was about not recognizing the validity of other cultures that was tom lawson talking about the effects of the british empire the earliest art ever found in egypt which is pecked uh, on the rocks overlooking the nile is of fishing equipment and it shows that from the dawn of time, people have not only used the Nile, but they've celebrated the, the, the bounty of the Nile. And that was Toby Wilkinson on the historic importance of the River Nile. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Charlotte Hodgman and I'm Features Editor of BBC History magazine, the UK's best-selling history title. You can find the magazine in all good news agents, or you can take out a subscription from anywhere in the world. See historyextra.com forward slash subscribe dash today for our latest subscription deals. We also have digital editions available for the iPad, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play and Zinio. To find out more about all of these digital formats, head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. We've also recently launched on Kobo. You'll find us under the e-magazine section on Kobo.com. The treatment of other cultures during the expansion of the British Empire has long been a controversial subject. In his new book, Professor Tom Lawson from Northumbria University explores the often brutal experiences of the people of Tasmania. 
He spoke to books editor Matt Elton about his research and how he hopes it may add to our understanding of the Empire Project. So what first led you to write this book? Um, well, it's quite a kind of uh, sort of serendipitous story, really. Um, I... I've mainly worked previously as a historian of the Holocaust and um, I'd written a book about the way in which the Holocaust was represented in history writing. Um, and then as a consequence of my being an editor of a journal called Holocaust Studies, we, we produced a special edition of that journal called uh, The Memory of the Holocaust in Australia. And um, producing that got me to thinking about how odd it was in a way that we were talking about the memory of of a particular genocide in this case the holocaust in a in a space that was itself you know had itself witnessed genocide in terms of the um the treatment of uh, indigenous populations there um so in a sense that's that's what what led me then to think about genocide in Tasmania and then links to my myself really i guess in terms of thinking about the kind of memory of that genocide in in Britain and how Britain had either dealt or not dealt with its its kind of genocidal past in in terms of the colonization of Australia Mm. I mean, this is, of course, a genocide that hasn't received much coverage or has been perhaps in some way forgotten, which we'll touch on in a minute. But it does mean that I think maybe listeners won't know much about the events we're talking about. So when are we talking about what kind of period and what happened? Okay, so um, the British established a a colony in uh, Tasmania, on the island of Tasmania, a colony that they called Van Diemen's Land in 1803 and 1804. Uh, It was largely to function as a penal colony. um, And over the first period um, the, of the of the colonisation, there was there were uh, exchanges of violence between um, the British settlers and an indigenous population on Tasmania that probably amounted to we don't really know how many, but we probably amounted to somewhere between eight and twelve thousand people. Um, I think the best estimates at the moment are probably around nine thousand people that were there when the British arrived um, in the eighteen twenties. So. Sometime after that original colonisation, relations between the indigenous population and the settlers um, became more and more violent, in in ending in in effectively a period of conflict um, in the middle part and latter part of the 1820s, which was known contemporaneously as the Black War. Um, largely, that happened in the 1820s because by that stage the colony had grown to such an extent that uh, indigenous peoples were being forced from their land and indeed their existence um, was being threatened simply by their inability to use the land in the way in which they had done previously. Um, So that black war led to large amounts of um, uh, deaths of indigenous people and and of course there were also um, deaths by disease. Um, By the end of the 1830s, 1820s, the indigenous population had actually declined to just really a few hundred Um, and uh, at that point um, the uh, indigenous peoples effectively, um, although indigenous population in, in Tasmania was was not not a unitary singular population. It was actually probably um, arranged into up to nine different um, nations or different ethnic uh, um, uh, linguistic and cultural groups. But the largest surviving cultural groups then at that point decided um, to effectively seek a, 
an agreement with the settlers. Um, that agreement was reached, um, but the, one of the consequences of that was that the colonial government sought then to remove the surviving population of um, uh, um, what we would now call Tasmania, and the, those people who had survived the conflict uh, um, were deported to um, an outlying island um, called Flinders Island, which is about um, 40 miles, I think, off the coast of um, Tasmania, where they were... Um, where they lived then in an, in a in a settlement um, that was known to the um, indigenous population as as Wyvalena. and on that settlement that population then declined to the point where by the mid 1840s there were just 47 um, I think survivors who were then at that point sent back to um, a, a disused penal station on Tasmania where the population further declined um, the the last quote unquote um, Tasmanian man died in the um, early part of the 1860s, and the last woman, um, Truganini, died in 1876. Um, that's a slight misnomer in the sense that the British themselves constructed this idea that they had as it were, exterminated the entire indigenous population. That's not entirely true in the sense that there were um, uh, indigenous people uh, um, who children of relationships between settlers and indigenous peoples who survived. And of course, there is a Tasmanian Aboriginal community today that is that has a direct lineage to those people. Um, but as far as the British were concerned, by 1876, there were no indigenous peoples left um, on Tasmania. I mean, that's fairly horrific treatment in a quite a short space of history. Um, what's the established view of who caused this, what happened and why it happened? Um, and then how does your study kind of differ from this, I guess? The difficulty, I guess, is in, in demonstrating in terms if we're talking about, you know, um, how, how people died. It's difficult to demonstrate how, how, how many people died through, for example, violence between settlers on the frontier and um, indigenous peoples. I mean, this was this was a war um, in a sense that um, the indigenous people were defending their land and doing so themselves uh, um, at um, with some violence. And certainly settlers um, in Van Diemen's land in the 1820s were afraid um, and indeed thought that there was a threat to the um to the very kind of survival of the of the colony so but in terms of the numbers it's not clear how many people died through violence how many people died through disease so for example those people who uh, um who were taken to to Wybalena, um all of those died ultimately through through disease um and that um in a sense we're not it's not entirely clear um you know, where one might apportion some sort of responsibility for that. In terms of the violence, um, the settlers themselves, uh, individual settlers, were um, were certainly um, the most exterminationist, if you, if, if, if you, to use that phrase, I mean, in the sense that it was settler communities that wished to kind of, um, that, that thought that the the indigenous population represented an existential threat to them. And there, you certainly find people talking in terms of extermination. The colonial government um, 
uh, um, didn't talk in those terms at all and, and sought to try and control, or in its terms, sought to kind of control the violence. But it often did that in a, in a way that exacerbated violence. Um, so, for example, you know, proclamations of martial law. Um, so there was a kind of rhetoric of controlling the violence, but at the same time, there was a, a legitimation of that violence. And then the colonial government, the colonial office in London, sorry, the British government, um, certainly set their stall against the notion that the the indigenous population should be exterminated. Um, they were very clear that that shouldn't be the case. But at the same time, there's a certain that's slightly uh, um, misleading in that they also stated very clearly that the first responsibility of the of the colonial government and indeed the settler population was to defend the colony. Um, and indeed, they were also utterly committed to the um, the development of the colony, um, which was ultimately, uh, after all, the root cause of the of the conflict. Um, but the the in terms of the um, removal of that of the population to Flinders Island or Waivalena, there the idea was in effect that these these people would be transformed somehow they would um be uh, rendered um into kind of european peasants they would be taught in inverted commas how to farm the land in a in a um in a british way um they would be taught to worship a christian god um they would be taught about the notion of commerce they would in effect be uh, uh, you know quote unquote civilized and that was you know that was a campaign of cultural destruction that certainly the um the colonial office in london were utterly committed to um uh, and indeed after there was a point during the 1830s that that actually i think the colonial office thought that settlements like that uh, on Flinders Island where you group together indigenous peoples and you attempted to kind of uh, as they would have seen it educate them um, and and show them the benefits of colonization that that that, also, that at that point became a model for how um, policy towards indigenous peoples might progress um, elsewhere in the empire um, that didn't last very long because Obviously, the the population um, uh, declined, so it was clear that this wasn't clear to the colonial office that this wasn't working. But certainly, um, I think that the it. I mean, in terms of you asked me how my interpretation was different. I think that it's different in the sense that I I what I try and investigate throughout is the relationship between violence um, and um, the the destruction of indigenous peoples and the British government. And I guess what I'm trying to argue is that um, you have to look beyond the kind of instructions to uh, against violence to think about where it's its root causes. And and there, I think you can apportion a great deal of responsibility to the very idea of the of the the colonial empire itself. And 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 to in that sense, the you know the representatives of that empire in government. In terms of then the British government's attitude towards this, is it correct to say that there was an attempt to, if not exterminate these people, then to render their culture in some way obsolete? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there there, there certainly isn't an, uh, an attempt to, you know, the, the, the government in London is absolutely committed to the idea that it should actually protect the, this population. But what that what you what you have to ask is what does that protection mean and what protection means is showing them the benefits of colonization and what 
that effectively means is a, a, a campaign of cultural destruction. There was no sense in which anyone involved in this story saw their saw there being a future for indigenous peoples within their own cultures on the island of Tasmania. They, they um, saw them, they saw their responsibilities to those peoples as converting them, as, um, uh, um, as I said before, teaching them to farm the land because they, they, they had a whole host of assumptions which suggested that indigenous peoples were, were unable to, to manage the land, which is, was, of course, untrue. They, they, man- they did indeed manage the land. They simply moved across it um, and um, used different parts of the, the land at different times of year and actually had a very um, uh, um, complex relationship with, with, with that that uh, their environment, which the British couldn't recognise, but absolutely they they were committed to the the um, the extirpation of indigenous culture. That the the colonial office would would have said um, and did indeed argue that they were also committed to the kind of physical protection uh, of of these people from the settlers. But that also that was quite an interesting idea because. There's a consistency to to the way people within the colonial office talk about this problem, and it's always in terms of that the problem here is the settlers that w- somehow, because of course lots of these settlers were um, uh, former convicts, that the, this idea that they had somehow exported the most savage parts of of British society, and that they were then uh, um, you, they were the root of the problem in terms of the violence with with the with the indigenous population. But of course that that's a very kind of that was a very um, a narrative that that sort of set the 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 colonial government and indeed the colonial idea itself free of any responsibility because their idea was well if 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 this colonialism was effectively being done properly then indigenous people would be brought uh, into its remit um, and would find their future as colonial citizens um, but there was certainly no commitment on the part of of anyone involved to actually the indigenous people surviving within their own culture, if you see what I mean. Absolutely. I mean, if we're to turn our attention away from these settlers to the figures in government or perhaps society uh, more generally, who can we start to explore in terms of the people behind these events? Well, I mean, the events take place over over a long period of time. So I I think that it's difficult to, to, um, to talk about in terms of individuals, I mean, I think that you can see a pretty consistent train of thought running through the colonial office, uh, um, which um, sets policy towards um, uh, uh, indigenous peoples through its uh, its relationship with with the um, its colonial um, governors uh, um, in in the colonies it, itself. Um, you can also start to look at um, in terms of you can. Um, track some individuals who um, who moved be- between um, Britain and um, the Australian colonies and, and Tasmania, and who who um, certainly came back to um, uh, to Britain. I mean, the most obvious example being a man um, called George Augustus Robinson, who um, was resp- largely personally, in a way, responsible for the gathering together of the indigenous survivors after the Black War and their their deportation to Flinders Island, because when I say the the the, the survivors were taken to Flinders Island, that what that didn't happen uh, um, 
in one go. It took Robinson um, and indeed his indigenous guides um, several years as they toured the island um, and um, uh, effectively convinced people to to come with them. And Robinson had come to Tasmania in the 1820s. He was a builder, but he was he was committed to to the kind of uh, he was evangelical. Um, Christian and he was committed to the, to what he saw as the saving of these people um, and he went on to then try and perform very similar tasks in other Australian colonies but ultimately he came back to Britain um, and he's now bar- buried in um, a graveyard in in Bath um, where his gravestone bears the extraordinary inscription of uh, George Augustus Robinson the pacificator of Tasmanian Aborigines is what it says on his um, his gravestone. Yeah. Okay. I mean, an expanding of obviously the story to the British Empire project uh, more generally. What does this episode tell us about its attitudes towards other cultures? And does it call into question the wider value of the empire? Um, I think that, you know, I find the sort of balance sheet um, approach to empire a bit difficult. I mean, I think that all all it does for me, and I'm not a historian of the British Empire, and this is, in a sense, was a you know, something that I discovered for myself in, in, in writing the book. Um, I think that we just have to accept that there is an inherent violence about settler colonialism, that, you know, it, ultimately the settler colonial idea was about not recognising the validity of other cultures. Indeed, it was about the, the uh, um, you know, the assumption, for example, that the land was... It, it, was empty. Now, this this doesn't mean that the the that, uh, um, the authors of Empire genuinely believed the land was empty. It simply means that they they didn't believe that it was being used properly, and that 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 the, these these different cultures had had no, in a sense, right to it. Um, and I think that that's the the reality of the settler colonial empire was that it was you know inherently necessarily destructive. Um, uh, and you know we need to engage with that um, in the way in which we think about um, uh, um, the empire in Britain. And I'm not entirely convinced that we do. I mean, I I'm aware that I use the term genocide, and I'm convinced of the use of that term. But it's a pejorative term, and I understand that, and I understand that some people will find that difficult. Um, but you know, if genocide is the destruction of another uh, um, people, um, and it's you know literally it's the expunging of, of of its culture, then that that's what happened here. And talking about um, the people to which this happened, um, what sources, what sense do we get of their? Uh, side of the story. What kind of sources did you use in the course of your research? Well, I mean, one of the interesting things about um, the uh, the Tasmanian uh, indigenous Tasmanian um, uh, culture is, in a way, the only records that we have for it are are the records that are um, produced by those individuals that are ultimately involved in its destruction. So um, the figure I talked about before, Robinson kept um, voluminous diaries, um, which have have a, um, you know, do record um, aspects of of indigenous culture, um, which are then, uh, um, uh, you know, kept alive to this day um, uh, through the the present day community. I think that um, the other thing, and one of the things I was also really interested in was the degree to which um, elements of cultural property um, and indeed 
ultimately human remains found their way back to Britain and were represented in Britain um, and continued to be represented up until relatively recently, um, which I think is, is, is also part of the, the, the story, really, which is the way in which this, this story had, had, you know, resonances and echoes um, a long time after the, 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 the story itself, in a way, had finished, if you see what I mean. I mean, let's talk about those echoes, I guess, a bit. Um, why do you think it's important? Well, I, I suppose, first of all, why do you think this episode has been kind of largely forgotten? Well, I think, I mean, the, the notion of it's being forgotten is, is, is a difficult one. I mean, I think if there was someone in Australia who was listening to this, this they would say that, that it hadn't been forgotten at all and was, in, was, um, was talked about uh, in Australian society, in wider society, as well as in Australian um, a- a- academia. I think that the, um, the interesting thing is that that, that conversation hasn't um, happened, it seems to me, in Britain in the sense that um, we... We talk about, um, you know, Australia um, struggles in some ways to come to terms with its kind of genocidal foundations, but there's this notion that that somehow is a story that's nothing to do with Britain, which I think is is interesting, um, and and I guess wrong. I think that the um, the the I, I guess I would also say that the the one of the things I was really struck by is that the presence of this story, the continuing presence of this story in in British culture. I mean, the you know these. Newspaper articles are written about the 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 the, the destruction of uh, of the indigenous peoples in Tasmania. The, there's a a, a um, the title of the book, The Last Man, comes from a um, uh, um, from a article in the Times that was about the death of William Lanny, the last um, uh, um, indigenous um, full blooded, as they would have called it, indigenous male. Um, the there was a another article in the Times that was a, a leader article in the Times that was entitled "We Have Exterminated the Race in Tasmania," or in Van Diemen's Land. Sorry. So there was this the, actually a kind of cultural presence of of uh, um, what happened. It was represented in in um, in paintings, in um, museum displays of of as I say, human remains. Often uh, you would find in in variety of museums across Britain. Um, uh, the skulls of of indigenous um tasmanians represented in in displays of um uh, eff- effectively displays of racial hierarchy and it was usually noted that um the 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 indigenous peoples of tasmania tasmania had been exterminated or had had um uh, um died out in in some way so there was a kind of enduring presence of this story in british culture i guess it has declined um uh, in more recently but you still uh, found uh, i still found um you know its presence in variety of places uh, um it, represented in in museum display where it still is today i mean if you go to um uh, um there was a collection of tasmanian artifacts that were um uh sent to a museum in saffron walden which are um displayed in a different way now much more sensitively than they were before but they're still there or similarly uh, a necklace of trigoninis was uh, on display in until it was returned to the present day tasmanian aboriginal community it was on display in exeter until the mid 1990s um with a with a kind of caption that talked about the destruction of of the people from which Truganini came. So um, there is a kind of presence of um, 
the the destruction in British culture, but it's often been explained as a kind of natural process somehow, as as that this almost um, caricatured as a kind of Stone Age population, the indigenous people that they they kind of um, faded from history, which is is its which is of course a a kind of obfuscation of of what were was at put periods times of of real violence and 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 you know at the end was certainly a period of 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 forced ethnic cleansing um which which certainly that part of the story perhaps the it, ha, it has not has not resonated sure no and we have touched on this briefly uh before um do you think it's important that the british people um come to terms uh, with the negative side of the empire and how far do you think this process has already started to happen I mean, that's a difficult uh, uh, question to answer, isn't it? Because in a way, it's so politicised. I mean, I think that, you know, uh, um, if you were to look at the um, the first drafts of the new national curriculum for, for history when they came out uh, um, last year or the year before, then you might say that it hasn't started to happen very far. I mean, I think that um, the uh, from my position as you know previously and primarily someone who was interested in in the holocaust i think it's interesting that we in britain regard genocide for example as the in a sense the ultimate atrocity the ultimate transgression this desire the you know the idea of kind of expunging another people being a kind of crime against humanity um that we we understand that and yet there's relatively little attention paid to to the um, the moments of empire where where those things happened and where the you know the the British vision of the world um, did unleash that kind of that kind of violence uh, um, uh, uh, you know on other parts of the uh, of the world. So I think that there is a there's a certain disconnect between our, our kind of um, uh, our willingness to remember the crimes of others in effect and 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 not to think about the the the, the violence of of empire um so i i'm yeah i'm not convinced um that that there's there's a great deal of reflection on on that kind of part of the of imperial history in in britain um at, at the moment at least fantastic um what message would you hope that readers would take away from this book about this particular genocide um i think that you know, I would hope that people engaged with it as a kind of way of looking at genocide um, and thinking about the way genocide relates to to um, to our own culture in 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 Britain, um, and to um, think about the way in which some ideas that we might think of uh, of as very normal, like for example the notion of progress, which I think is still part of a kind of some visions of m some sort of mainstream visions of historical development, that we might think um, think about the violence within that. That that actually those the, the, there is, those kind of ideas do disguise violence, and that we have to we have to face up to the fact that. Um, uh, um, you know that 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 we have a we have a past that is that is difficult challenging and has some difficult um issues for people to deal with and i think that that you know we like to tell ourselves stories about the past that are very comforting that are very kind of you know uh, about british heroism um and all i would say is that you know within some of those stories there are also some really also some really um dark moments and and this is one of those that was Tom Lawson. Tom's book, The Last Man, A British Genocide in Tasmania, is out now, published by IB Taurus.
This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. And learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Before our next interview, it's time to catch up with the latest history news with our website editor, Emma McFarnan. A letter of advice on how to be a king sent to the future George III by his father, Frederick, Prince of Wales, is to go on display for the first time. The previously unseen letter, written in 1749, urges the future king to avoid war, ease the tax burden and not to trust flatterers. It will go on show at the Queen's Gallery, Buckingham Palace, in April as part of a new exhibition titled The First Georgians, Art and Monarchy, 1714-1760. George III became heir to the throne on the death of his father in 1751, succeeding his grandfather, George II, in 1760. In other news, the world's oldest known Holocaust survivor has died aged 110. Alice Hertzsummer, who lived in London, died on Sunday morning. Miss Hertzsummer spent two years in a Nazi concentration camp in Theresienstadt after being born into a Jewish family in Prague in 1903. She was a renowned concert pianist who was recently the subject of an Oscar-nominated documentary, The Lady in Number 6, Music Saved My Life. Meanwhile, a lost portrait of Charles Edward Stewart popularly known as Bonnie Prince Charlie, has been discovered in Scotland. The portrait, which dates to 1745, the year Charles launched his ill-fated invasion of England, was painted by Scottish artist Alan Ramsay. Painted in Holyrood Palace, 
it has for over 250 years remained almost entirely unseen in a collection at Godsford House just outside Edinburgh. It is the only portrait of Charles to have been painted in Britain. Thanks for that, Emma. And don't forget you can stay up to date with all the latest history news at historyextra.com. Toby Wilkinson is an Egyptologist based at the University of Cambridge. In his latest book, he tells the story of the Nile River from ancient times up until Egypt's troubled present. Editor Rob Attar spoke to Toby a little while ago about his new book and began by asking him how important he felt the Nile was to the history of Egypt. The Nile is absolutely essential. I mean, there's this famous quote from Herodotus, the ancient Greek historian, that Egypt is the gift of the river, um, which is a simple way of saying that without the Nile, there would be no Egypt. I mean, it is essentially the Sahara Desert. And the only thing that brings life to uh, that part of, of North Africa is the River Nile. So historically and today, all life has depended on the river. And so clearly, as you said, Egypt wouldn't be possible without the Nile. Is there almost more than that, though? I mean, is it the case that the Nile gave Egypt a head start over the other countries around it that enabled it to be the first great ancient civilization? Yes, yeah, so the Nile doesn't just make life possible, but it also makes life productive. So because of the particular uh, regime of the River Nile in, in ancient times and indeed up to modern times, um, Agriculture in Egypt uh, is incredibly bountiful and indeed is more productive than in most other parts of of the world, uh, certainly other surrounding countries, which meant that from the time that people first settled down to farm in the Nile Valley, they were able to produce not just enough to eat, but enough to provide a surplus. And that immediately gives a society the ability to uh, to trade, to engage in what you might think of non-productive activities, in other words, developing a great civilization. And so it really does give Egypt a head start. And of course, the other crucial uh, aspect of the Nile is that it unifies the country. It provides the main means of transport and communication and means that it's relatively easy in Egypt to uh, communicate and travel between towns and cities, all of which incidentally are located by the banks of the Nile. And so from a very early period, Egypt is able to be unified as a single country in a way that, for example, Mesopotamia was not. Now, the Nile clearly does travel down further than the borders of Egypt. So why was it that the entire Nile region didn't become one country? Why did it stop where Egypt stopped? It's a good question, and it has largely to do with with geography. Uh, so, from its journey um, northwards, from uh, its sources in in the Ethiopian highlands and in Lake Victoria, um, as the Nile flows northwards, it, it encounters a series of, of obstacles in its path, um, sort of intrusions of hard rock across the the river valley, which cause it to flow through rapids and, and waterfalls, and they're what we call the Nile cataracts. And they provide quite a barrier to shipping and communication. And it's only when the Nile has, if you like, overcome the final barrier, uh, the first Nile cataract, uh, that it flows uninterrupted uh, down to the Mediterranean Sea. And it's no coincidence that that first Nile cataract coincides with the the ancient boundary between Egypt and what was called Nubia, the area to the south. So it's really in the Egyptian Nile that the river takes on its its most important characteristics of being easily navigable uh, and a good source of communication. And therefore, in that stretch of the river's valley, that you get a great civilization developing. In that case, was it was it not the case that the civilizations further south of Egypt were able to communicate or reach Egypt with the Nile? Was it just not navigable at all? 
They were able to communicate with Egypt, but they never developed the same sort of uh, large-scale unified civilization that, that occurred further north. So you do get a number of, of, of small-scale uh, cultures developing on the Upper Nile uh, in what is now Sudan, uh, but they never have the geographical hinterland to really take that next step towards being a, a great civilization. So they always remain uh, somewhat subservient to Egypt in the north. In the ancient Egyptian period, how did, I know, I mean, that's obviously a very long period of time, but how did people then understand the Nile? What did they think of it? Well, it's a very good question. And the ancient Egyptians uh, had no name for the Nile. They simply called it the river because it was the only river in their world. Um, and they understood that it uh, had its origins beneath a great cavern at the area of the first cataract. And this was because this was where the, the floodwaters of the Nile first became audible and, and visible. Um, and so they believed it was divinely sent. It was, it was sent uh, by the gods to water Egypt. And indeed, there's a wonderful um, religious hymn uh, from the 14th century uh, B.C., which contrasts Egypt with the other countries around it. And it makes the, the very telling point that Egypt has a Nile, has a river uh, to bring life uh, to the land, whereas in other countries, the river is in the sky. In other words, the rain falls from the sky, whereas in Egypt, the rain comes from, uh, from the, the rainwater in the river. And, and how well did the people of ancient Egypt actually understand the river and how the river actually worked? Well, they certainly, by long experience, uh, understood its annual uh, cycle of, of flood uh, and then uh, receding waters. And they, they understood that they uh, could harness the power of the Nile to irrigate their fields. Um, they didn't know, for example, where the Nile had its source. As I say, they thought it was in a cavern deep below the first cataract. And, and we now know um, that in fact it flows uh, from the Ethiopian highlands and, and Lake Victoria. But um, they certainly understood that it was the key to uh, Egypt's uh, life and livelihood. And there are hymns to the River Nile and, and they worship the Nile flood uh, as a god of great sort of bountiful generosity. Do you think there were any downsides to Egypt from being so dependent on this river? Uh, absolutely, there were. So uh, the, the greatest downside was the unpredictability of the Nile flood. Um, if the Nile flooded um, at a, a kind of moderate level, um, then that uh, brought water to the fields and meant that Egypt would, would prosper. But if the flood was either too, uh, too high um, or too low, uh, it would bring disaster and famine. So if the Nile flood was too high, it would wash away uh, ditches and, and dikes and, and breach uh, field boundaries uh, and inundate settlements and fields for too long um, and would cause uh, famine. Uh, and if the Nile flood was too low, the, the fields would simply not receive the water that they needed for the crops to grow. Uh, and again, starvation ensued. So the Egyptians were very conscious of the fact that the Nile was, it, it could give and it could take away. And, and and the, the balance between, if you like, uh, bounty and famine was a very, very fine balance. Was Nile then reflected in other aspects of Egypt's culture, such as their language and their religion? Well, what is quite interesting is that although the Nile was so central to the Egyptian way of life, it wasn't by any means the most important god. Uh, you might have thought that they would have worshipped the Nile above all else. In fact, they worshipped the sun. Um, above all else. And I think that has something to do with um, 
the fact that the sun rises and sets every day. So every single day it brings the promise of rebirth uh, and new life when it rises uh, every, uh, every dawn. Whereas the Nile was just kind of there. It was a constant in their lives. Um, and although they worshipped its, its flood, its annual inundation, uh, as the bringer of fertility, um, it was perhaps... Uh, almost taken for granted as, as something that just existed. And so they didn't tend to invest it with great religious uh, authority. Um, so I suppose it, it's, it's one of these things that it's important, incredibly important, but it's also so much a part of their, their daily experience that they almost come to overlook it, if that makes sense. And, and the Nile was clearly so important strategically for Egypt. Was it ever battled over? So certainly control of the river um, and control of, of, of traffic on the river w was incredibly important. Um, if you think of um, well, more recent history, for example, and, and the history of the British Empire, um, the British Empire was forged essentially to uh, protect trade. Uh, and it was the British Navy which allowed a, a relatively small island off the northwest coast of Europe to, to develop a worldwide empire. Well, similarly, the, the Nile was the route to trade between uh, Egypt and, and the rest of, of Africa. And so control of the Nile was incredibly important. And we have accounts really through, throughout history of battles on the Nile, uh, of navies uh, taking part in, in, in pitched warfare uh, on the Nile, um, not to control the Nile per se, but to control its, its importance as a, as a route for, for transport and communications. Did it matter which side of the Nile you lived on or were there bridges and transport across so that the two was fairly interchangeable? That's an excellent question. Of course, there, there were no bridges until modern times, um, but there were and are uh, many, many ferries and small boats that ply from one side of the Nile to the other. So there was certainly always regular uh, traffic and communication across the river. Um, did it matter which side of the river you lived on? Well, to an extent it did, in that um, in Egyptian folklore and Egyptian mythology, uh, the east where the sun rises was very much uh, associated with the land of the living, whereas the, the west where the sun sets was the land of the dead. And so in many parts of Egypt, you find the main settlement on the east bank and you find the main cemetery opposite on, on, on the west bank. Um, but the other factor is, is the movement of the river itself. And because the Nile has never been static, it's always kind of swung from east to west across its floodplain uh, over the course of many centuries you might find that there was only a tiny amount of agricultural land on one bank of the river uh, and a much broader expanse on the other side of the river, um, in which case, of course, it would make sense to live whichever side had the fields. So you do see a different pattern of settlements as you go the length of the Nile Valley, depending on where the widest uh, area of, of, of agricultural land is. And you say that the Nile moved quite a lot over the years. Did that make it difficult for people who, because there are quite a lot of cities built around the Nile, does that make it difficult for people living in those cities? Well, we know that cities moved. So, for example, the capital, um, capital city of Egypt throughout the ancient period, Memphis, um, moved progressively as the Nile uh, moved within its floodplain. So where Memphis is located now um, is, is, is much further to uh, the east than the ancient city of Memphis. And it simply followed the, the, the movement of the river because what was of critical importance was to be right up against the riverbank for the unloading and loading of, of barges and, uh, and trade. So, um, so yes, people follow the river. Um, but of course, you know, we're not talking about 
instantaneous change here. We're talking of change over over centuries. And so uh, as settlements sort of develop, they they follow the movement of of the river. The Nile being so important to Egypt, was it possible to develop a city away from the Nile or was really all of Egyptian civilization on the Nile's banks? Absolutely all of Egyptian civilization was on the Nile banks and, and it's only in very recent times, I mean really in the last decade or so, uh, that cities in Egypt have been founded uh, away from the River Nile uh, and you have these series of, of new cities that have been built out in the desert. Um, but they're pretty bleak places and of course they, they depend ultimately on the river because they need water supplies like any other city and that has to be pumped and, and piped. Uh, from the river. So in a sense, even though they're physically no longer up on the river bank, they're still dependent upon the river Nile. Following the end of of ancient Egypt, did the Nile's importance decline? Is that one of the reasons why the country was no longer sort of at the forefront of the world or was was it more for other reasons? I think it's for other reasons, because if you look at Egypt in the Roman period, um, uh, the Nile is is incredibly important because uh, Egypt is the breadbasket of the Roman Empire, and you have uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of grain ships uh, loading up uh, all along the Nile, uh, and then sailing out into the Mediterranean to take their supplies to Rome to feed the imperial capital. So the Nile still remains the lifeline uh, that that connects the whole of the country with its export markets. Um, I think the reason why Egypt declines as a a power, um, well, it's a a good question. There are a number of of factors and uh, one can look at at, at more recent developments and say, why is it that countries never stay on top forever? It's something about other countries coming up, being more agile, being more responsive, Uh, And of course, in Egypt's case, it also overreached itself um, in terms of of crippling its economies. So um, perhaps there's a lesson there for more more recent history. Uh, But the Nile always remains um, the kind of critical feature in Egyptian history and enables it, um, as I say, to communicate with the outside world and also to, to make the most of its own natural resources. Clearly, right at the moment, Egypt's in a real state of flux. How do you think the Nile might figure in the country's future? Well, water uh, and access to water supplies um, is a major, uh, it's a major factor in Egypt. It's a major factor in many parts of the world. We know that more and more water is being diverted uh, from the Nile further south through a, a series of dams and also through agriculture within Egypt. And there are major uh, concerns about uh, water supply. Uh, and as the population of Egypt grows relentlessly, some estimates are that the population of Egypt is, is rising by a million every nine months. Uh, those are a million extra people uh, that need access to fresh water. So at some point in the not too distant future, uh, water is going to run out or at least become very scarce. Um, So access to the Nile uh, and the Nile's uh, regular flow will be absolutely crucial for the the future of Egypt. Uh, And of course, uh, in another way too, I mean, the Nile through the Aswan High Dam uh, generates much of of Egypt's power. Um, And again, as the population rises, so the demands for electricity uh, grow inexorably. So almost in every way you can think of, um, whether it's fresh water, whether it's feeding Egypt's population, or whether it's providing electricity, the Nile holds the key to the country's future. And and none of the political turmoil that we see on the streets of Cairo today is going to be resolved uh, without proper custodianship of the Nile, because that is the key to Egypt's Egypt's continued uh, welfare. I know a lot of people also use the Nile for tourism and people go on Nile cruises, for example. 
So if you were to go on a Nile cruise, which parts of Egypt would you want to visit on it? Well, the answer may be surprising. I would choose actually to visit one of the least visited stretches of the River Nile, which we call Middle Egypt. And that simply signifies that it's kind of in between the two major tourist hotspots of of Cairo and Luxor. People are well used to travelling the Nile uh, between Luxor and Aswan, down in the south of the country. Um, And of course, there are wonderful monuments along the banks of the river there. But for me, the really magical part of Egypt is is the middle stretch uh, between Cairo and Luxor. It's relatively... um, seldom visited by uh, by modern tourists. It has some of the most stunning scenery in the whole of Egypt, uh, wonderful bird life, um, and is probably the least spoilt stretch of the, of the Nile. So if you want to get a sense of what the Nile looked like and felt like in ancient times, Middle Egypt, p- past cities like Minya and Malawi and Asyut, uh, is really unbeatable. That's great, Toby. I think that I've been through the questions I had to ask you. Is there anything else you'd like to cover at all or you wanted to mention? I think I would simply say that, you know, the Nile, not only through its kind of uh, its presence uh, and its its life giving powers, but through its its kind of hold on the Egyptian psyche is, if you like, the kind of silver thread that runs throughout Egyptian history from from the earliest times down to the present day. And I would just encapsulate that in, in two small kind of facts, really. Uh, One is that, you know, we're very accustomed to seeing ancient Egyptian art on tombs and temples. And in fact, that artistic tradition can be traced back uh, thousands of years before recorded history. And the earliest uh, art ever found in Egypt, which is pecked uh, on the rocks overlooking the Nile, uh, is of uh, fishing uh, equipment. Uh, And it shows that from the dawn of time, people have not only used the Nile, but they've celebrated the the bounty of the Nile in their art. Um, So go back as far as you like, and the Nile is there, central to Egyptian consciousness. And then the other fact, of course, is is what's happening today and has happened in the last couple of years since the overthrow of, of, of Mubarak. And it's that uh, time and again, um, the, the great flashpoints of, of Egyptian history um, are by the banks of the Nile, the bridges over the Nile in Cairo. These are the, the, the places where pitch battles are being fought between supporters of opposing camps. and And it's where people go literally and metaphorically, to cool off uh, after uh, incidents. So the Nile is, is there, always has been there. Um, and I think no matter what the, the future of Egypt, and it certainly looks uncertain, uh, the one thing that the Egyptians know they can depend upon uh, is the Nile. And that gives their life some stability in a very changing uh, and uncertain uh, circumstance. And that was Toby Wilkinson. The Nile Down River through Egypt's past and present has just been published by Bloomsbury. Just before we go, here's a reminder that BBC History magazine is holding two-day events at Bristol's M-Shed on the 15th and 16th of March. We begin with a Vikings Day on Saturday, followed by a First World War Day on the Sunday. In each case, you'll get the chance to hear talks from a range of expert historians and enjoy a buffet lunch. For more information and to find out how to purchase tickets to these events, visit historyextra.com forward slash events. Well, that's almost all for this week. Do get in touch with your views by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we'll do our best to read out some of your messages in future episodes. Don't forget, our March issue is now available in print and digital formats with features on Henry VIII's court, as seen through the eyes of a long-serving ambassador, Viking dominance of the seas and the legend of the Long March. You can also keep in touch with us on social media. Follow us on Twitter at History Extra, 
and like us on facebook.com forward slash history extra. Plus, make sure you visit our website, historyextra.com, for all the latest history news, blogs, image galleries, features, quizzes and much more. Next week, we'll be finding out about the Nazi women who visited London and taking a sneak preview at a new Viking exhibition at the British Museum. Do join us for that. This History Extra podcast was recorded on location in Bristol and was produced by Jack Fletcher.